Welcome to the Who Made Child Priest podcast, where we have conversations about everyday life experiences through the eyes of two people who just happen to be priests. We will share some of our personal experiences along our spiritual journey, and on occasion, discuss the issues of our time. Five, four, eight. Oh, Shayun. What's going on, man? Man, nothing much, man. How you feeling? Man, I'm a little bit under the weather, man, but I think I'm going to make it, man. I think I'm going to make it through. You got that vid? I got that vid, man. I tested positive on uh, Monday. Uh, I started feeling bad while we were at the beach. Uh, yeah, man, I started feeling bad then, and I took a COVID test on Monday. and Yeah, man. But I was back at work today, man, you know. Mm-hmm. Hey man, you, hey, you got to clarify that because you making it sound like we was on the date. What you say? <laughs> I said you got to clarify that you making it sound like we was on a date. I say we was at the beach, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Man, you, know, you know, you know. Recently, we just had our uh, 2022 OIDSI biennial conference. Man, we had a a great time. We met some great new people from all over America, possibly all over the world. We had people coming from everywhere to come to H-Town and join in the fellowship of OIDSI, man. Yeah, man, it was dope. It was our first conference. We've been to a couple of uh, EFI festivals, and the last one was a big turnout. The last one was like 175 people for the festival. Right. Um, but um, like, like he said, we have it every two years. We were supposed to have it in 2020, um, but, you know, uh, the vid went ahead and canceled that one. Yeah, man. Yeah. So what do you think? What do you think was your biggest takeaway from the conference? My biggest takeaway from the conference was we as uh, spiritual practitioners aren't doing enough. Mm. We, we're not tapping in enough. You know, we're not utilizing our powers to the fullest. Mm. You know, that's what I took from it. Um, and I kind of have kind of taken it upon myself to really tighten, you know, what I got going on. Tighten right. that up, you know. Um, making sure I'm studying like I'm supposed to. Making sure I'm you know, I'm doing my ritual like I'm supposed to and the whole nine, you know, make sure I got my spiritual practice down pat. Like it's, it really made me leave motivated to do more, to be bigger, to be better in my spiritual practice. Right. So what about you? Um, similar to, uh, what you said, um, my biggest takeaway was probably uh, having it reaffirmed that the lineage that we uh, hail from is a lineage of excellency. And it, it made me too want to tighten up what I got going on here. Uh, Like you say, study more so we can, you know, step out when, when need be, when Baba call our names, we don't have to be, uh, wondering if we can do what Bob is asking us to do, you know, so making sure that we study and 
be ready to to move when Bible say move. Right. Right. Yeah, man. So man, this 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 episode was not planned. <laughs> right. This episode was not planned. This was something that uh came about uh in the mist. Uh so uh tell us tell us what we got on today's episode, man. So I I had a, an experience last week that I wanted to share. Um <laughs> It uh is one of those things that I'm probably five, ten, twenty years from now, I'm probably going to look back on because it's probably gonna take that amount of time for me to fully understand the impact right. of the last couple of weeks. So um I recently started a new job. So Monday, um Monday I started a new job. And, uh, you know, when, you know, for me, I'm transitioning, there's a lot of different things that I have to do. I have access to a lot of different things and I have to kind of out process and and all that. I work for um, NASA or I used to work for NASA. So I had a lot of stuff to do, but I got a letter a couple months ago saying that I had to report for jury duty on uh the fifth the day after the holiday so i i looked at the exemptions i tried to find a way to get out of it none of the exemptions applied so um i had to go ahead and and move forward so like i've expressed on this show you know multiple times i start my day off whether i'm at home or traveling with a divination so i divine for the energy of my day so as I'm looking at the um, the message from Spirit, and I'm interpreting it, there's a lot of things about um, being objective and seeing things from both sides and telling the truth. Mm. So I said, "Oh, man, y'all want me to be on this jury?" <laughs> I said, I, "I don't think so, but okay, I, I hear you. It's fine." So I get to um, the courthouse and there's a lot of people assembled for this jury. And this is the second time I've been called for jury duty. The first time I was just there all day, never went to the courtroom and was dismissed. Right. So at some point I'm thinking like maybe I'll just go there and I'll be there for a couple of hours I'll get dismissed and then I'll have like the whole day free to just do whatever I want <laughs> free day off work free day off of work right free <laughs> paid day off of work at that right so I get there like like before it was here this time it was a lot more people so I think they said it was like 250 people so we get wow. started and they said, hey, we only, we don't need, you know, most of you guys. So most of you guys are going to go home. So I'm like, start, you know, getting ready, put my book bag on because I'm on my way home. Of course, they read off the names and one of the names they read off is mine. So they tell us where to go. We had to go down to um, a specific uh, courtroom. And then that's when they'll start with the, uh, what's it, Vore Dyer. With so, the what? Vore Dyer. That's when 
basically the prosecution pretty much both well both sides but it starts off with with the state and they'll present certain information not facts of the case but they'll present information that relate to the case so they can kind of see who they want on the jury for their side Mm. and then the state kind of does the same thing again you don't get any facts of the case it's just stuff like hey um can the law says you are innocent to proven guilty can you accept that my client is innocent at this moment stuff like that right you know um the state will present things like hey if someone is found guilty you know do you have an issue with giving them a maximum sentence and things of that nature right and they're asking these questions do you have any religious beliefs that prevent you from sitting on the jury those type of things they can kind of weed out people right right so we walk in there it's a young hispanic guy that is sitting up front right now this is my first time being in this process of the jury so i don't even know who this person is right it doesn't sink in that at the beginning that this is the defendant so we find out as the state is presenting their information that this is a murder trial wow and when i get that information i look and i'm like man this dude is young young right i can't quite place how young but he is young then they go in and said at the time in which the crime was committed, the defendant was 15 years old. Wow. So there's a lot of people, they're asking questions like, hey, do you have an issue with finding this person guilty when he was 15 at the time that he did it? So a lot of people canceled themselves out there. There were people who said they could not accept that he was innocent as we sit here. There were people saying, hey, you know, I believe in the system. If he was arrested and he's here, then that means he has to be guilty. Mm. Right. Now, I'm ready to go home, but as I'm listening to this stuff, I'm like, man, this dude's not going to get a fair shake. And as I'm listening to the responses from the people who are in this jury pool, it started really weighing on Like, it started getting really heavy, right? Mm. At one time, I started to tear up because I'm like, man, they are going to send this dude to jail for 99 years, which was the question. If found guilty, do you have a, an issue with sending him to 99 years? Right. And overwhelming the majority of the people said, no, I ain't got a problem with that. So I'm sitting here getting emotional like, man, uh, I got stuff to do. You know what I'm saying? I got, you know, somebody who counts on me at work that I, I got. I want to kind of help them through the last couple of weeks in the transition. You know, I got a going away luncheon. You know, I um, there's other things at work that I need to do. I have the conference. So I'm like, I don't want a chance missing that. So, man, I don't want to be here. But I felt like I had no choice. So there was a couple of times where they asked a couple of questions where I was going to be like, yep, nah, I'm not going to be able to do it so I can get kicked <laughs> off. Yeah. 
So I said, no, I'm uh, I'm not going to do any of that. So they announced it on the jury. And of course, I'm one of the, the first names. Now, let me back up a little bit. For people who don't really understand this jury thing, right? A jury is supposed to consist of your peers. Right. If you understand what the word peer means, Mm. then that means there should have been a whole bunch of very young Hispanics, maybe male, of the same socioeconomic status as a defendant. Right. We don't have juries of people's peers. Well, let me back up. We don't have juries full of people's peers, specifically if you are um, a minority in this country. So that's one of the first things that I, I saw immediately. I'm looking around and I'm like, I can't tell you who's on trial here based upon the people in the room. Right. Because, again, the word pe- words have definitions. Words have meaning. And that's the, that's the first thing before I even knew who was on trial or what the charge was. That's the first thing that I, I looked at. Can I tell who's on trial based upon who's in this jury pool? But how much of that is, is, is our fault? Like, how many of us get summoned to jury duty and <coughs> we throw those we throw those things in the trash we throw those letters um in the trash or we make an attempt to do exactly what you said you wanted to do and to get out of it not knowing that we could possibly be be doing something that you did so i'm gonna say none of it is our fault or well let me back up I think the majority of it is our fault, but that the fault lies or comes in not in that way, right? Because to me, the fault is, again, it goes back to the degradation of society, the degradation of the family, the cohesion, the sense of community in some of the minority communities. That's where it comes from. That's where it starts, right? And I feel like a lot of times when we try to assess blame for the lack of a better word about certain things, we never go deep enough. It's all surface level, right? You know, something happened, oh, you shouldn't have been here. Well, let's talk about all the steps that got me here. Those are the things that need to be changed. Right. So that's kind of where I go with it is I go, I try to anyway, think about the root. I try to keep peeling back the the layers of the onion until I get to the core, to the center, you know? So, yeah, I'm thinking about all these different things in my head, right? So they put me on the jury. So we go in and we sit in and we're going through the trial. Now, the first thing that I noticed is, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was seven years old. Like people, like I have family members who still think that I'm a lawyer. 
<laughs> wow. Because they know that's all I talked about. And they know I went to school. They know I went to school for a long time. And they just assume, like, oh, you know, he does what he says he's going to do. So he's he's a lawyer right now. And I, I got into wanting to be a lawyer because I used to watch the People's Court with Judge Wapner. And I wanted to be a judge. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I want to be a judge. And then my mom said, well, to be a judge, you have to be a lawyer. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to be a lawyer. I'm just going to be a judge. <laughs> but then she had to explain to me, like, no, 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 no. Literally, that's the step. You got to go to law school, become a lawyer. I said, all right, I'm going to be a lawyer for the shortest amount of time possible. Then I'm going to go be a judge. Then uh, shortly after that, I was like, nah. I'm cool with the lawyer thing. I can stay a lawyer for a while. Like, I'm good with that. So I've been wanting to be a lawyer for forever. Um, there's been times, even in my adult life, at certain periods where people have tried to convince me, like, hey, it's not too late. You know, you can go back to school um, and be a lawyer. But at some point, I decided that the only kind of lawyer that I wanted to be was, like, you know, criminal defense lawyer, you know, um, prosecutor, you know, I wanted that court, being in the courtroom, going back and forth in these big cases, murder cases, all those type of things. And then one time I realized I didn't have the heart to do that. Because um, in my own arrogant way, I was like, I'm going to be such a good lawyer that I would be sending people who were innocent to jail for stuff they didn't do if I was a prosecutor. Or on the other hand, people who were guilty of heinous crimes, I was going to be so good. I was going to get them off free. <laughs> and I couldn't live with either one of those, right? right. <laughs> so corporate law didn't seem like it was something that um, that I wanted to do. So I kind of gave up on the whole lawyer thing. But it never kind of left me. It was still something lingering over the years. Right. <clears throat> <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. So they start the trial. They give us the facts of the case. And here's the facts of the case. There was a, there was a girl, 20 years old, um, young lady. And um, she met a guy, 19-year-old guy, close to 20, almost 20. And they hit it off. They got together. Now, the guy was into some, you know, he was into, you know, drug dealing and he was into guns and all that type of thing. And she was a drug user. You know, she was doing everything. You know, um, I don't even count weed as a drug, but for people who count that, that, I mean, she was doing pills, you know, all kind of stuff, right? Mm. And they met because he was her dealer for, for a little bit. She was looking for a dealer. She got introduced to this guy and then they started dating. Somehow into dating, somebody, we don't know exactly who came up with the, the scheme. There's a, a site that you can get on and basically you could solicit probably all kinds of things. But one of the things you can do is solicit sex on this site or that's what people use it for. So the girl, you know, 
met a couple of tricks and you know, I mean Johns, um, and went out with them, like go on dates and would get money and things of that nature. So one day, uh, an older gentleman reaches out to her on this site and then they start a conversation. Well, at some point, the guy and the girl decide that they're going to rob him. And as the state tells the story, they bring in the 15-year-old boy to be a part of the plan. And this is to rob the, who you say is a John. To rob yeah, the to rob the John. Right. right. They're going to rob him. So they're communicating with him on a specific day. They set a day, okay, we're going to go and we're going to hook up on this day. So the story, as the prosecution tells it, is the three of them go from Katie down to, um, I think it's called Wild Peach. It's yeah, in Victoria Wild County. Peach. It's almost about an hour drive. Right. Right. Now, in the middle of these conversations, he's saying he has all this money. She's asking, do you have any dogs? Um, do you live with anybody? He has a roommate. Where's the roommate going to be? The roommate's going to be gone. Okay. Let me see your guns. So he has this big gun case, opens it up, takes pictures of the gun. She's like, let me let me see the money. I'm going to make sure you got all the money. Do you have all the money with you? Yes, I got all the money with me. Take a picture. Takes a picture of the money. Sends him the money. So they make a plan to go down there. So they travel down. Like I said, it's about a, it's about a an hour ride, fifty minutes, something like that. And it's in the country, you know, like Wild Peach. It's in Brazoria County. It's in the country, mm-hmm. in the here in the Houston um, area. So they go down there. The girl name is Mandy. She goes in first. So they're in there. They're partying. He asked her, you want to, you know, you ever done meth? She's like, no. Like, you want to try it? She says, sure. So they try the meth. So they do the meth. They're both high. Mandy sends the message to, like, a text message or, or however it was communicated to the guys in the car, Andrew, um, Hinojosa and Johan Magiel sends them a message to come on in. They they bust in the door and the 15-year-old Johan has a big gun, um, a 300 blackout. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. So a 300 blackout is a 223 bullet that's modified. And it's modified in a way that makes it's like a bigger bullet. It makes a bigger hole, basically, upon impact. Mm. So guns called a, a 300 blackout. I think, if I remember correctly, it's like an AK. So they bust in, and then Johan, the 15-year-old, bow, shoots him one time in the leg. They then take him, and they sit him in 
one of his dining room chairs, but his dining room chairs have wheels on them. And you're telling us this from the perspective of the state, right? Right. Right. This is what the state is saying. Now, Mandy, the girl, this is what she says happened. Right? So, whether or not Johan was there or not, we don't know, but I'm pretty comfortable, again, maybe take him out the picture, but the, the way things moved around was kind of how they happened. From evidence, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that interpretation, right? So they sit him in the, in the chair, in the dining room chair, and they wheel him into his master bedroom where his safety is. And they have him open up his safe. And then they clean out the safe. And then they take some some money and then they take a couple TVs and they leave. Now he is in agony and he's bleeding profusely. Right. When we see the photos of his leg, it looks like a lion got to it. And I don't mean like, you know, a quick little swipe. Like the like the lion had plenty of time to kind of snack on his leg. That's how it looked. You know, it was disgusting. But he's bleeding out. So his roommate, who he let live with him because she had recently had a heart attack, um, forgets, I think, her medication at home. So she go, she runs back home. And when she runs home, she sees a pool of blood. She sees blood everywhere. And then she hears him screaming. So then um, he was a Marine. And he had a, um, was it a, a tourniquet? Right. Applied on, he took his belt off and put on his leg and had it tight. So she goes down and then she's, you know, pulling the belt tight. And she calls 911. Now we get to hear the entire 911 call, and she's one of the witnesses that the prosecution um, calls. So we hear her explain what happened, and then you know we hear a 911 call. I think it took them like 13 minutes from the time she took the call to come to the house. Um, they take him to um, I think Sweeney Hospital. Yeah, Sweeney Hospital. And he bleeds out and he dies there. So the police take his phone and they get into it and download the messages. That's when they find the messages between him and the girl, or at least the girl's account slash cell phone. Right. Because technically she could have gave the phone to somebody else to, to, you know, do everything. They find her messages. Um, then they go to um, to her house, and you know, there's a warrant. She's arrested. Oh, one of the other things too, I forgot about. They stole this car. Yeah, he, he has he has a couple cars, but he had a pickup. They stole this pickup truck. Mm. So they pick her up. They they interview her. She is determined to be a liar at that point. They interview her again because she's locked up. They determine her to be a liar yet again. 
They get in contact with her family. Her family provides some contact information to her boyfriend, Andrew Hinojosa. They also had some um, some Snapchat conversation between Mandy and her sister, because I guess she put all this money, um, took a picture with all this money and put it on Snapchat, and her sister asked, hey, where'd you get that money? And she said, Andrew hit a lick, which is her boyfriend. Wow. Right? So the the family, the, the mom and the sister, all the, are extremely cooperative. And then they give that to the police. So um, the police go looking for Andrew Hinojosa. They they arrest Mandy at at like a um, at a hotel, like some sleazy hotel. Andrew is there, but they don't arrest Andrew. You know, after after Mandy's parents come and talk with her on a Friday, that Monday, Mandy calls the detective and wants to have a conversation, and then that conversation she's deemed to be truthful and she tells the story about um the 15 year old johan magiel being the one who shot and subsequently killed um the man right so two months like a month and a half or so later they go and they get a warrant and then they go search the boy's house the young boy house. Yeah, the young boy. They um they find a lot of things that like they found some shell casings or not some shell casings, some some shotgun shells of a brand that they said was extremely rare called Spartan. They take pictures of they have pictures of this guy's um safe, you know, um I guess he likes to post his stuff. So they have a picture of the contents that were in there, at least at some time. And in the boy's room, he has the same or, uh, you know, the same brand of shotgun shells. They also found the gun that they said was the murder weapon at this boy's house. Come on, man. So they interviewed this, this 15 year old for an hour and 10 minutes at his home. They they put everybody in the house in handcuffs. His mother is not there, and they interview him by himself. You say they interview him by what? By himself, mm-hmm. right? So he talks for about an hour and ten minutes, and basically in an hour and ten minutes, um, he never implicates the girl or Andrew Hinojosa. He says he doesn't know anything about it. He wasn't there. He he's admitted that he's done some some things with Andrew Hinojosa. Like he's been in the car with him when he was selling drugs, and he will sit in the back seat with the gun in the hand while the person he's selling to sits in the in the passenger side, just in case something goes wrong. And um, he has a picture that he posted of him and Andrew on Instagram, and they're both holding guns. Um. So he, he he admitted to that, but he initially said he didn't have any guns, but they found all these guns in his bedroom. And towards the end of the conversation, he said, oh, okay, yeah, those are my guns. I bought them a couple months ago. The gun specifically that they are saying um, was the murder weapon. Um, 
So they do the like they do the interview. Cup about a month later, they come back and they arrest him. They find Andrew Hinojosa in Livingston, Texas. Okay. Right. So, as I'm listening to this girl talk, right, it's a whole lot of I don't know. She doesn't know where they left from to get to the guy's house. She doesn't remember where anybody sat in the car, who was driving her car. She doesn't remember a lot of different things when she was at the house. Doesn't remember the signal for them to come in. She initially said there was two shots, but they never found an, another bullet, whether lodged inside um, the victim or anywhere in the house. Um, she doesn't remember who she was riding with when they left. She doesn't remember when or where they picked up Johan, the 15-year-old, or if they picked him up at all, if he was just at her house or um, at uh, Andrew Hinojosa's uh, people's house when they first left off. She like It literally was mostly, I don't know, I don't remember, is what she said most of the time. Like 80% of her testimony was, I don't know, I don't remember. So I already feel a certain way about that, right? They they check the cell phone, uh, the towers. Her cell phone ping. She was in the area of the of where the crime was committed, and she lives nowhere near that, like a, like an hour away. They they don't find that for any one of the other two men that was that were um, accused of being with her or who she said was with her. Um, what else? Um, they did the DNA. Now, this was my thing, right? I said, ooh, this DNA going to do it, right? Right. The only DNA that they found was the victim and hers. They had no DNA for anybody else. So I'm like, they have no evidence. Right. They can't place him there. There's through the cell phone, through DNA. Your your only witness is someone who she was giving um and you have to help me with this. She was given um a deal basically where her testimony couldn't be used against herself. But she wasn't given total immunity. Right. So she still had to go fight her own case. Um, there was a ballistics guy who said that the bullet came from the 300 blackout that was found at um, Johan Magiel's house. But then on cross-examination, there was a question about... Um, Something about could the gun have been reloaded and shot another gun and all that? And they were like, yes. So that killed it for me. And um, the only other kind of compelling evidence was when he was in juvie, Johan. He, the, um, like the therapist or whatever, asked why he was there. And she said, he said it was 
for something that happened a while ago. I was in it for money. I never meant to hurt anybody. And then we were dismissed to go, you know, make a decision, make a ruling if he was guilty or not guilty. So, again, 15-year-old Hispanic male. There was me. I was the only black male. There was a, a black elderly woman there was um like two hispanics that were on the um no three there were three hispanics on the court i mean on the jury and one filipino the rest were white so we were the charge was guilty of murder and guilty of aggravated robbery not guilty of murder, guilty of aggravated robbery, or not guilty of both counts. We we went in the back and we took an immediate vote. There were maybe five, yeah, there were about five not, I mean, five guilty of both. There was five not guilty of murder, but guilty of aggravated robbery. And there were two not guilty. I was the first person to vote not guilty. And then there was another gentleman, a white male who also voted not guilty. Not guilty on both charges. Not guilty on both charges. Right. Again, like I said, my thing was they couldn't put him there. They couldn't place him there through DNA, anything. Their star witness didn't know anything. And she was there. Except, oh yeah, he did the shooting. She could tell you that part. She could tell you he did the shooting. Then she could tell you that they wheeled, they put him in the chair and wheeled him to the master bedroom and had him open up the safe. Now, initially though, she did say that her boyfriend, he, he gave the boyfriend the code and he tried to open the safe. But then he realized that, I guess, whatever code he was given was a dummy code and he knew that it was going to alert the police. Which, that couldn't have happened because he had no DNA on them. Right. And I know they wasn't in there with gloves and then or, or later on went through with chloride bleach and wiped everything down because A, there was no evidence of that. And B, they had dropped bullets all over the place. They had dropped guns and all kind of other stuff all over the place in a rush to get out. And it was all sloppy, so I know they, they didn't do that. Um, The other guy who voted not guilty sided with me in all the points that I made. Majority of the people that found him guilty not only were women, but were mothers. And that shocked me. Mm. Um, the black lady the black woman who was oh yeah he's guilty that shocked me so we deliberated for 18 hours which the judge that we um, who was on the case he had been there for 24 years doing that job and it was the longest deliberation 
in his whole career. Wow. And for me, it was so emotionally tense. Right? It was so emotionally tense because for a couple of reasons. A, I'm trying to tell these people like, hey, the prosecution has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. It's, that's their job. He don't have to prove he didn't do it. Absolutely. Right? And beyond a reasonable <clears throat> doubt is the hardest thing to prove. And if you get into, it's like no, I guess, real definition per se, but essentially it's can you reasonably state or see or understand how there could be another alternative? Right. Right? If you can, if the answer is yes, then you have to vote not guilty. Man, it was people on there who just, man, dude, when I tell you, I just felt like there were some people on there who were just cold. Like when I tell you, man, it was killing me, like being there and listening. And I'm trying to be the priest. I'm trying to stay in the middle, right? And I'm trying to look at both sides and, and speak about things from a logical standpoint and um, not be emotional about it. But so I started telling from my personal experience, like where I'm from, how I grew up. The, the friends and family and the environment I was in and what I watched other people do. Not what I did, because I didn't, you know, I didn't get in any trouble growing up. But I got a lot of friends and family who did. So I was trying to, to provide perspective. But because this was not a jury of his peers, they couldn't see that perspective. Right. It was like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but still. You know what I'm saying? Right. 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 And the the part the part of the process, I'm glad that you got uh the opportunity to see that part of the process. I've never seen that uh that part of the process. Uh I've been to prison twice. I've only seen a judge twice. Uh, I can't remember seeing a district attorney uh maybe one time. I don't really remember, but the the part that you don't see is even though he's at trial, they are still trying to get him to cap out, and the way they are doing it is through uh, an attempted psychological breakdown. So I was on the phone with you one morning, and you and I were talking. It was about eight thirty. And you were on your way to go and do your uh, jury duty. You were uh, in the middle of the trial. It's about 8.30. And I think I told you that, you know, it's 8.30. You haven't even made it to the courthouse yet. And this man, if he's in jail, he's been up since 2.30 or 3 o'clock getting ready to go to court. Uh, They fed him... uh, a hard boiled egg, uh, one of those little bitty, uh, those little uh, containers, uh, fruit loops that you used to get when you was little, the little bitty ones, and probably an orange juice. 
and he's going in and out, in and out, in and out of these cold holding cells. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to break him. They're trying to break him and make him cap out because the state doesn't want to go to trial. They they really don't want to go to trial. They they want him to cap out. So even though he's at trial, they still want him to cap out. And that's how they're doing it. Uh, I remember watching a documentary called 13th. And I tell everybody the few times I've watched that documentary, I cried each time. And it talks about how 97% of the people in prison cap out. They never go to trial. They never see a jury. They just cap out. They just plead guilty. And we live in a society where there are a lot of people who so believe in the system that they believe that if you have made contact with law enforcement, you are guilty. There is no innocent until proven guilty. You are guilty. If you are in jail, you are guilty. Uh, I remember asking you the question, is he in jail or is he free? And you said you didn't know. And that's, they do that on purpose. So you are not supposed to know if he's in jail or if he's free. Because being in jail gives, uh, it makes it seem as if he's guilty. Being in jail makes you look guilty. It's crazy. Uh, I've been to prison twice. Once for something that I did and once for something that I didn't do. And even when I went to prison the second time for something that I didn't do, I copped out. And I copped out because it's like the lesser of two evils. It's the do I do I take this five years or do I risk getting 50 years? And, Man. and for me, it's a no-brainer. You know, I'm, I'm going to take this five years and, you know, and gone up the road and possibly and come home someday. But with a 50 year sentence, man, I'll never see the streets again. So you get you get a lot of people that uh, that cap out. And, and the, the horrible thing about capping out to time, though, and uh, I'll give you my experience is that so I capped out to a five year sentence. When I got to prison after being gone for about, I don't know, 18, 19 months, they dismissed my charge. They dismissed my charge. But because I had copped out and pled guilty, it was still nothing that I could do. They sent the letter to me in my cell. And your charges, your charges have been dismissed. But it was nothing that I could do. I still had to serve my I still had to serve my time. And I ended up serving almost the whole five year sentence. That's so, crazy. So I know what uh dude was going through, uh whether he was guilty or not. I I know uh what he was going through. I know what they were trying to get him to do because I've seen them do it to so man, I've seen people sign for astronomical numbers, man, I'm like, 
you know, 20, a 20 year sentence, signing for a 20 year sentence, capping out for a 20 year sentence, man, you got to know the alternative is life. So when you see people, uh, a lot of people will say there are no innocent people in prison. There are a lot of innocent people in prison. And when I say innocent, what I mean is innocent of the crime that they were charged with. I'm not saying that these people were uh, were saints and weren't guilty of other things because I was guilty of other things, but I was not guilty of what I had been charged with. So looking back at it now, uh, I, I just take it as, uh, as karma, as a lesson that I had to learn and experience that I had to have. Because again, like I say, without prison, there is no me. There is no me talking to you right now this is and this is an emotional subject for me so yeah man so what 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 ended up being the um how did that turn out for uh johan yeah so i'm in there man and i'm and i'm i'm going in to the point where tuesday so i go there on tuesday the 5th by that following Tuesday, I go home and I'm like, man, I'm not going back. <laughs> like, I was just so drained. Right. Because they had no evidence, right? And it was people on there who just could not, could not see it. Could not see it. There was, there was one uh, old white lady that was there. And this is what Ifa has helped me to understand. It was an old white lady in there and she really didn't want to come off of him being guilty, right? And she was pouring over all kind of evidence, evidence that didn't really have nothing to do with nothing. She wanted to go see it over again. Like, you know, she was really helping to drag the situation out, but she wasn't budging. And then she told a story about something that happened to her where she was on a walk and a young girl was playing on her phone, texting and driving and hit her as she was walking. Now, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. She went to the hospital and, you know, got stitched up. But she still was in a little pain and she was asking for, um, you know, antibiotics and other things to deal with the pain. And, and they were just like, no, the doctors were like, no, we're not doing it. We don't give out stuff like that, you know, just to anybody. And she's complaining and complaining and they won't give her anything. She goes see some other doctors. She's asking, man, I need something, you know, it's painful, yada, yada, yada. No. We don't really give out stuff like that. Then finally she goes to a doctor that would listen to her. And come to find out she had an infection and she underwent a, a surgical procedure every other day for a week straight. Different surgical procedures. Because it was an infection and it was all kind of different stuff going on. She had to do, eventually had to do skin grafts from her left leg to her right leg. Uh, 
and she was in so much pain and it was a horrible experience. And she went and talked to some lawyers about it. And it was pretty much there was nothing she could do. It was like, yeah, you could try to sue the doctors, but then because this, this, and that, it probably won't be successful. And yeah, you could try to sue the girl, but then she's 16. Uh, so she doesn't have anything. But then you can sue the insurance, and then, well, by the time they spend all this money on doctor bills, the lawyers get their piece, she's really not going to get anything. Now, they was like, well, you can sue her parents, and she didn't feel comfortable with that because she said the parents didn't have anything to do with it. Right. And her whole thing was, I kept feeling throughout this whole process that it was it was horrible because nobody was going to be held accountable. And with that, she didn't want to vote not guilty and have Johan, who she felt was guilty of something. You know, she eventually came off of the murder because of, you know, we I kept reiterating what was in the charge. And here's the crazy thing about the aggravated um, robbery charge. It's aggravated robbery up until somebody dies. And once somebody dies, whether you were the one who pulled the trigger or you are a party to the murder, which means you were you were part of the robbery, so you were there, you were the getaway driver, you helped plan it, whatever the case may be. You helped participate in the committing of a felony that ended up with somebody dying, then that's murder. Right. So aggravated robbery really isn't a thing in this case. But they wanted to give people an option because they're like, look, if you can't, if you don't feel comfortable with saying he's guilty of murder, then do aggravated robbery so we can find him guilty of something. Right. And my argument the whole time was aggravated robbery is not even a thing because the guy died. So it's either not guilty or guilty of murder. But people wanted to split the difference and say, oh, he did something, but we don't know if it's murder, so we'll pick that. Which I didn't quite get. I felt like they should have been not guilty. But hey, that's their vote. But that's how they do it too. Even even when they're trying to get you to cap out, that's what that's what they'll do. Uh, all right, well, we won't charge you with murder. We'll charge you with aggravated robbery or aggravated assault. And they'll they'll keep coming down because the state they just want to get a conviction. That's it. Right. Right. So, like I said, it started off at five people guilty of murder and aggravated robbery. Five people not guilty of murder but guilty of aggravated robbery. And two people guilty of, uh, I mean not guilty. And I believe with the fighting between me and the other guy um, we got those five people to come off of being guilty of murder. And it ended up being six people saying he was not guilty of murder, but guilty of aggravated robbery and six people not guilty. And a part of me felt good about that. And then part of me was like, 
we're stuck. So they're going to have to do this all over again. So we ended up being a hung jury. Uh, The judge said that that was, I think, his second hung jury. Like I said, it was his longest deliberation. And it was a, uh, like a second hung jury. And the other one involved uh, murder with a, um, a, um, a juvenile. So they couldn't come to a decision. So we go into the jury box for this decision to be read. And um, to the prosecution and the defense and with the defendant in the courtroom. And the whole time he just has a kind of an emotionless blank stare on his face, the the defendant. And some people wanted to try to hold that against him. And we had to squash that like, hey, you know, again, he doesn't have to prove himself not guilty. That has nothing to do with anything. Right. But when they read the decision off, he was bawling. Tears just flowing. And I look over at him and he looks at me, tears running. And man, I'm right there with him. I'm right there with him, just me and him. And they dismiss us. And the the prosecution stops a group of us because he wanted to talk to us about how we viewed the case, right? Now I'm mean, I'm like I'm not saying anything. I'm not I'm not speaking to them. I'm not trying to help them send this little boy to jail. Right. But I w- I did want to be a part of the company. I wanted to hear what was going on. And the one com- com- comment that I eventually did make was, "Your star witness was trash." <laughs> like she didn't say anything. Right. And I and I admitted they were like. I said I was I was not guilty from the very beginning. And they were like, why? Like, because you didn't you didn't prove your case. Flat out. That that was the extent of my conversation with that. But then the defense came out. Um and and he asked a couple of questions. And I did answer his question. Um, because again, I just felt like the little boy wasn't gonna get a fair shake. And one of the things they, they were hung up on is his comment. Most of the people who were in the, who were going back and forth at different times between not guilty and guilty of aggravated robbery was going back and forth because of the counselor, the therapist, whatever she was um, for DPS. And when he said, I'm here for something to happen a while back, I didn't mean to hurt anyone. Um, I was in it for money. Right. They, they held that to me. Now, when she made, they asked her what she said, she made the comment, the defense, I mean, excuse me, the prosecution rested. The defense said, we have no other questions. And when I felt, tell you, I feel like they just like rushed her off the stand. That came across as shady to me. Another thing that came across shady to me that some of the white jurors um, couldn't understand and this isn't again, and I'm not saying it's say it's a race thing, but it, it really speaks to uh demographics. Mm-hmm. When Mandy sent the picture on Snapchat and her sister asked her about it and she said uh Andrew hit a lick, 
the state asked, well, the, the detective, what does hit a lick mean? And he said, it means um, they robbed somebody. Oh, uh, see. And when I'm in the back room, I'm like, that's not what it means. It can <laughs> mean that. Right. But the top probably three answers is not that. Right. I just said I hit a lick. Any if, if, if I buy something for a dollar and I sell it to somebody for 50, I hit a lick. Right. If if I go buy something and I know it's worth a hundred dollars and I buy it for 20, I hit a lick. Right. Growing up in the type of neighborhood that I grew up with people who was gang banging, robberies, all that type of stuff was going on. Majority of the time when I heard hit a lick growing up, it was that type of thing. Right. It was not a robbery. But there's so much trust in the judicial system and the detectives and the police and all that, that if you are a minority specifically and you are you up on that stand or 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 you you've been accused of something. And you you look over the majority of those people don't look like you. You're gonna be in trouble, right? You don't stand a chance, and that's why people don't go to trial, right? That's why we don't go to trial, right? That's why I've never been to trial. When uh, my mother <laughs> my mother asked me about going to trial, and I'm like, "Mama, uh, I'm not finna go sit in front of them people. I'm just finna uh, get something I can do, and I'm gonna go." Do it and I and I'll be back home, but I'm not finna go sit in front of no jury and the judge and all that. They gonna give me fifty years. Um, and even even using, uh, I was gonna try to find it and uh, try to uh, upload it as a as a picture for this uh, episode. Once we determined that we was gonna do this, uh, to show my. Uh, my denial papers from when I saw parole and the things that it says and how it it makes you look horrible on paper. On paper, you look horrible. And like I say, when my mother stood with me to get sentenced the first time for which I was guilty, the judge wanted her to admit that I was a monster and that's how that's how they make you look so going back again and them being able to grab all of those things all over again bringing up all of these different things from when you were I was 18 years old from when I was 18 years old makes me look like a monster whether I'm innocent or guilty and I know that so I'm not going to sit in front of no jury or none of that. I just want to get something I can do, and I'm gone. Even today, if I got arrested right now for something that I didn't do, and I felt like uh, that was a, an amount of time that I could get where I could go, do my time, and come back home, I'm not sitting in front of no jury. Man, and, 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 and I get it. Like, if we had this conversation a month ago, I'd be like, you tripping. Right. But after that experience, man, I was a, 
and, and here's the thing too, when you talk about you crying during, you know, the Netflix series 13 or show and me being emotional twice during the trial, I'm not an emotional dude. You're not an emotional dude. Right. Like, crying and, and emotion is not what we do. But in, in, in that moment, man, I was just like, and, and I saw up close and personal one of the glaring weaknesses of this country. And I know this happens all the time. Like when I tell you how many people, 10 out of 12 people from the beginning wanted to find him guilty of something. Right. And they had no evidence. Right. I was just like, yo, this is like, I kept on thinking like, okay, this is where they're going to get him. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. They got the ballistics people. They got him right here. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. They got a witness. Let me hear what she said. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, this, y'all, y'all did the cell phone tires thing? Oh, oh, it came up with nothing. We did this whole long thing about the DNA. I was waiting for the DNA the whole time. And the, the questioning of the person who did the DNA, when I tell you it was long and grueling, all for them to say the only evidence of DNA they found was from the man who owned the house and the person who admitted they were there. Man. That's crazy, man. I don't I don't I don't think that uh we in this society, unless you've been through what you've been through, and unless you've been through what I've been through, really understand what it means when they say innocent until proven guilty. That it's right. that the burden of proof is on the state. And right. I don't have to prove that I didn't do it. It do, I don't it doesn't matter what you think about me. I don't have to prove that I didn't do it. The state has to prove that I did it. And I don't think people really understand that. And a lot of people just want somebody to be held accountable. And that person turns out to be uh, the scapegoat. Just somebody to be held accountable. So they can feel like they can go home and sleep well at night. We put somebody uh, behind bars that shouldn't be out on the street. It's crazy, man. Right. And here's the thing. One of the people who was adamant about him being guilty of aggravated robbery was Hispanic, was Mexican. And he kept on talking about what he wouldn't have done. So I was like, oh, okay, I get it. You one of those minorities who probably got a good job and you know you you, you live in a good neighborhood. And and you feeling yourself, and then you trying to distance yourself, right, from your people who didn't make the same choices, but maybe didn't have the same opportunities for one reason or another, right. I understand as a priest that some of the things that we experience here, that you know, are things that we chose to experience before we right. got here right. for our own growth and elevation. I got that, but. The way he was, he kept on saying, and he's he's older than me, right? He's probably late forties, talking about what he wouldn't have done. Well, I hope you wouldn't have done it, right? You know what I'm saying? So, like that was bothering one of the people 
who held on to him being guilty of murder up until the end, and then they came down to uh, guilty of aggravated robbery, is a is a school prince um, assistant principal. And hearing some of the things that I heard bothered me. Mm. Then want to give an example of, you know, yeah, when kids come come to my office, and I can tell who's lying because I'm like, okay, so when kids come to your office because they were talking too much in class versus somebody who's on trial for murder right right <laughs> right it seems like the the jurors that were uh on that jury with you were uh, they were very emotional i think the the position of a juror should be held by priest what we call priest People right able to the uh to stand in the middle and see equally to both sides and not be uh, swayed by emotion and understanding that the state has to prove the case. To me, that's the most important part of the trial is understanding that the that the uh, that the state has to prove the case. That's the most important thing to me. But I know so, it's not that, so I'll never go. I'll throw that out even. Because I believe that what should be done is that we should we should divine. There should be no jury. There should be a council of, of, of priests, and you divine on guilt and innocence. And then you ask E5, what should be the penalty? Right. Because one of the first things that I thought about. So what I told you about the whole thing with um, the guy and soliciting the prostitute or solicitate, soliciting Mandy for sex and all that situation, what leg you think he got shot in? <laughs> uh, his left leg? Got shot in the left leg. That's the first thing that came to my mind. Like, you must got a, you might have an issue with women. Right. And then you got shot in the left leg that represents the feminine. So that's how I'm looking at it. Now, I played their game, right? I played their game and I, and I did what I was supposed to do. And I did it based upon the evidence that was provided. Right. But I also, I also divined on it. So I know what happened. Mm. If I told me what happened. Mm. And if I supported my decision of voting not guilty. Now I'm gonna tell you the part that, that kind of got to me a little bit. Every morning there was a uh one of the Hispanic ladies, she was probably early 50s. She always started it off with a prayer. She always talked about how um, this was emotionally traumatic to her. And 
when it was all over and it was a hung jury and they told us probably around November they're going to do this all over again. Um, I'm walking out and she approaches me. And she said, man, I don't feel good about this. And she said, I wanted to talk to you, but I, no, I didn't know how to approach you because, you know, you're not supposed to talk about this outside of the, the deliberation room. So she said with that, she didn't know how to talk to me or how to approach me. But she said she wanted to come to me and ask if I felt comfortable voting um, guilty of aggravated robbery and then convincing other people to come to aggravated robbery. And we find him guilty of aggravated robbery. And because we were choosing his sentence, we would give him a lenient sentence. Because she feared that the next jury is going to find him guilty of murder. Right. And she said it pained her so much. And she really wanted to find out, like, how can I, how can I talk to him about this? How can I approach him about that? And she's like, because I knew we could, we, we could have convinced him. And we could have done a solid for him. Yeah, he, he probably was caught up in some things that he sh- shouldn't have been caught up in. But in my heart of hearts, and if I agree with me, he didn't commit murder. He didn't. Mm. I know a whole lot of people who have received stolen property in neighborhoods like the one I grew up in. Well, exactly. Present company included. I, Man, I went to school for many years. Fly. With stolen property. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I know a lot of people who have to carry guns for protection in my neighborhood, and none of them went to the store and bought it. Right. Right. So so I had doubt into how that could all happen. I will say this though, if I told me. That it was the mother two. The other two was trying to drag him into it. Right. Right. And while he wasn't guilt free, if I didn't believe, or not believe, if I said he didn't need to go to jail because he had it within himself to be something great one day. Mm. And then I felt better. I said, okay, if I'm supporting my decision, if I'm right there with me. Man, well, but I don't know what's going to happen to him. Well, hopefully he has somebody on his next jury uh, that's, that's like you. And I think we need to start to encourage people in our community to uh, not pushing a jury duty to the side and actually going because you could possibly save a life in doing so. Absolutely. I know I'm never going to attempt to get out of jury duty ever again after after doing this. Um and and again like I said he's Hispanic probably Mexican no he's Mexican. That's right because um he mentioned that where he was from in Mexico. He was born in Mexico. Mm. And I don't know what his mama doing. 
But uh, somebody need to go find them somebody and get them a chicken, get them a rooster <laughs> or a hen. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, and, and take care of it that way. But yeah, it's to the point, man, where a part of me wants to go, wants to go visit him. Man, part of me just want to go visit him and say, man, I'm praying for you. Right. And if you get out of here, or whenever you get out of here, however go down, man, you have the opportunity to be somebody great. Right. So do that. Go be somebody great. Right. And he needs to be told that. Absolutely. Yeah, man. So this was our last episode for the season, right? It was, man. You know, I hate to end it on a, a, a somber note, man, but it, this was something that was heavy on me. And and with O'Shea's experiences, it is something that's that's heavy on him. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, yeah, this is definitely the um, a perfect way to end it. Right. And we appreciate y'all for rocking with us, man. Season one, 11 episodes. We've had great feedback yes we have we and have. next season we're gonna be bigger and better oh yeah man we got big things planned man big things planned so you got any last words to say on our our uh season finale for season one man y'all just stay tuned y'all keep rocking with us keep checking in keep listening make sure y'all stay tuned yeah, tap in with us. We have an IG page now. It's uh, who.made.y'all.priest on Instagram. Tap in. Check in with us. We posting pictures. You know, we might catch y'all on the live here or there. And um, we, we, we want to feel that sense of community, man. Communicate with us. Talk to us. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you dislike. Right. And... Um, I'm going to end it like I always do. Life's a journey. Don't forget the map. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Who Made Y'all Priest podcast. We would love for our listeners to interact with us. So leave us a voice message on the Anchor app or send us an email at WMYP at yahoo.com and don't forget to like subscribe and tell a friend